I want to tell you the thing that I will miss the most about this game is the sound of your applause and your cheers. Thank you very much. This is a special report from NBC News. The Los Angeles County District Attorney has just filed murder charges against Arinthal James O.J. Simpson in the murders of his ex-wife Nicole Brown Simpson and 25-year-old Ronald Goldman. This is the Sports Law with the judge and legal analyst Andy Wood. Show that it is, and that is exactly what we will do here. We'll show you the way, at least try to here on the Sports Law with some of the legal issues in the sports world. We continue here, thanks to this band here, Stuck on Planet Earth, for all the Sports Law theme songs as well, and thanks to our big voice man, Pates, uh, for continuing to bring it each and every week here. But here in part of our legacy topic, uh, we're going to bring the folks a three-parter. This is part one of three, The People versus O.J. Simpson. And we're going to go from the start of the case, from the start of O.J. Simpson to the end of the case, to where are they now, the verdict, all that fun stuff over these three parts. But a big factor in this is the fact that there was a miniseries just made about this mm-hmm. by FX. And we both had a chance to watch that and review that as well. But we're going to start here with uh, some O.J. Simpson background, uh, the background of what took place, the murders, how everything came to be early on, all the way up until the Bronco chase. In part number two, we'll go over the case overall. Cameras in the courtroom, a big factor in this case. Jury selections, also the race card being played, a big factor in this case. And then in part three, we'll go over the verdict, the jury's decision, the world's reaction, the civil case, and again, where are they now? But let's start here, Andy. This is one of the all-time greatest sports law topics, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. And uh, we'd be pumping out episodes every single day if we were uh, covering this trial back in the 90s. But let's start. Give us some background of O.J. Simpson. Uh, we'll first start with the person and, and what he's all about before we get to the murders. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize, you know, we, we sort of know O.J. as this accused murderer. Yeah. You know, prolific Bad golfer. Bad guy. Prolific golfer, of course, looking all, the golf courses all over America for the real killer. But uh, O.J. Simpson was a running back for the University of Southern California who was drafted first overall by the Buffalo Bills in 1969. He, he would go on to play nine seasons with the Bills before finishing his career at home in California with the San Francisco 49ers. Following his football career, the man known as the Juice would go on to work as a commentator for both ABC and NBC. He went on to host Saturday Night Live and had a relatively successful acting career. He may be best known for his role in the Naked Gun trilogy. I think we all remember that one, which starred legendary Canadian comedian Leslie Nielsen. Yeah, maybe one of the very first black superstar athletes that uh, not just played the game and was a superstar both in the game that he played, being an NFL running back, but also outside of that as uh, he was a promo guy, he was a pitch man, he was making a ton of money after his Hertz, I believe, was his big... Yeah, uh, he had some big commercials there, but you hit it up with the uh, Naked Gun, one of his biggest movies, and he was all over the place. People loved O.J. Simpson, people loved the juice, as they would refer to him back then. And uh, they loved everything about him, from his NFL career, from his college career, to his acting career, and all that. But then it all comes to a screeching halt in the early 90s uh, when his ex-wife was murdered along 
with Ron Goldman. So that's Nicole Simpson and Ron Goldman were murdered. Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, his ex-wife, Nicole and OJ, were married in February of 1985. They went on to have, this is the second marriage for uh, OJ. They went on to have two children. The marriage was notable because OJ did plead no contest to spells of abuse in 1989. Uh, The marriage would eventually end in 1992 when Nicole filed for divorce. As you indicated, and I think as we know the story, uh, two years later on June 12, 1994, the bodies of Nicole Brown Simpson and her friend, a local waiter named Ronald Goldman, were discovered outside of Nicole's condo on Bundy Drive in the affluent area of Brentwood, Los Angeles, along with a bloody glove being discovered at the scene. Yeah, the bloody glove, a big factor in this case, or one of the two bloody gloves found in this case, a huge factor. A lot of different evidence was found at uh, both the Brentwood estate, but also uh, Rockingham, where O.J. Simpson's residence was. And they cover it a lot in the miniseries. And that's uh, really a big reason why we wanted to bring this topic to the folks, the People vs. O.J. Simpson. Because of the miniseries, the, the documentary that was made about this case, it really focuses in on lawyers and the behind-the-scenes dealings that went on with uh, some of the people involved, This, you know, Robert Kardashian, one of uh, O.J. Simpson's representatives, Robert Shapiro, uh, there's Johnny Cochran, very famous uh, lawyer as well that fought for uh, equal rights. Uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. actually plays O.J. Simpson in the miniseries. And so we'll talk a, a bit about the first couple episodes because that's what we're talking about here. We start with really off the bat in this miniseries, the murders that took place, O.J. leaving to go to Chicago, and how the whole prosecution team came together and how the charges came down for O.J. So the first few episodes tackle that, and they tackle it in an interesting way, really from the seat of both the prosecution and Mm -hmm. O.J. putting together his defense. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, as you said, O.J. goes to Chicago. He comes back. He retains defense lawyer Robert Shapiro. He'd go on to stay at the home of his friend Robert Kardashian. Yes, of the famous Kardashian family. Was a lawyer by trade, went on to be a real estate developer. He did reactivate his lapsed law license to assist in the defense of his friends. So this is really the beginning stages we see. You know, Again, Shapiro gets retained. Kardashian is sort of going to help out his friend. He's going to help mount the defense. And then uh, Shapiro, what he, I guess it's typical in criminal cases, you know, if you have a high profile accused, you know, you sort of say, let him turn himself in. So yeah. he was, Shapiro was actually able to convince the LAPD to allow himself to, to allow OJ to turn himself in. After he failed to turn himself in, the motorist would spot OJ in the now famous white Bronco driven by his friend Al A.C. Callings, in which O.J. sat in the back of the vehicle with a gun to his head. There was a famous note that's read by Robert Kardashian, which is uh, perceived to be be a suicide note. And the now very famous Bronco chase along the highways of Southern California took place. And to give this context, this is 1994. A lot of things are happening. The New York Knicks are in the NBA final. Arnold Palmer is playing in his final U.S. Open, the famous golfer. A lot of big sports stories. And the juice is now in the back of a white Bronco waving a gun to his head after Robert Kardashian reads a note which is perceived to be many to be a suicide note. I don't think it gets much bigger than that and uh, really captivates, uh, you know, a whole nation. A whole nation, the, the entire world really focusing in on this story. And the juice was on the loose that day, Andy, with uh, a warrant out for his arrest as well. And they were trying to get him... Uh, 
uh, while they were trying to arrest him and, and bring him in. And, and you mentioned some of the details that the miniseries does cover. They cover that press conference, which, uh, looking at it in hindsight, wasn't the best idea to go mm-hmm. on with a uh, with a note like that. But we'll get into some of those more details because whether they come up in the court case or come up in how the uh, team is selected for O.J. Simpson when we get to part number two. But we'll finish it at that Bronco chase, the huge day in the sports world, and really it created the uh, 24-7 news cycle that we see today all in and around these events taking place from the murders to the warrant for his arrest, uh, both the LAPD versus the the uh, the defense team holding these different little press conferences talking about O.J. Simpson when he's gone missing, and it's uh, created a, a media storm, if you will, and that was just the beginning, really, when you think about it, because of what happens in this case later on. We have an official announcement from the Los Angeles Police Department. Mr. Sim- Simpson, in agreement with his attorney, was scheduled to surrender this morning to the Los Angeles Police Department. Mr. Simpson has not appeared. The Los Angeles Police Department right now is actively searching for Mr. Simpson. To provide further context, which is sort of an important, I guess at the time it probably wasn't thought of as a big issue until until Johnny Cochran, of course, the famous lawyer, becomes involved. But this was only a few years after the Rodney King riots. Yeah. In, uh, and they show in, that as well in, in the miniseries. In Los Angeles, so a lot of distrust between the uh, black community and the LAPD. Again, at the time of the Bronco chase, I don't think a lot of people were thinking of that angle. But, uh, of course, later on with the involvement of the famed uh, sort of civil rights activist and uh, attorney Johnny Cochran, that would be sort of the focus would shift to that and the relationship between, again, the black community and the LAPD. Yeah, just a huge case, one that we really wanted to talk about here on the Sports Law for a number of weeks overall when it comes to this story. We started with the O.J. Simpson background, the background of the murders, and really what led up to the Bronco chase. That's part one. In part two, we're going to go over the the case overall, talk about cameras in the courtroom, a big factor here, some of the jury selection topics as well, how the teams came together, both for the prosecution, but also the dream team, as Andy mentioned, get into a lot of Johnny Cochran, as he wasn't featured that much in the first couple episodes of the miniseries, but a big factor as the series goes on, and really, in real life, how this story played out. Johnny Cochran was huge when it came to this, and then in part three, we'll talk about the verdict, the decisions made, the world's reaction, but also where they are today. O.J. Simpson is in jail today, so, but not for this crime. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so, but we will get into all that as we move forward here on the sports law that'll be part two and three coming your way thanks for uh, being along for this episode oh, thanks for it. tuning in as well to our fine listeners out there again you can get a hold of the program by twitter at the sports law or send us an email the sports law at gmail.com stay tuned it's the judge alongside legal analyst andy wood Hearts and Bows Boutique, where you can get the bow for those closest to your heart. From beautiful bows, headbands, and bow ties, the answer to your accessory needs is Hearts and Bows Boutique. From the very young to the young at heart, there is nothing like your own personalized order for the ones you love. For more information and to place an order, contact Hearts and Bows Boutique at Hotmail.com. Again, Hearts and Bows Boutique 
at Hotmail.com. And the best part, 10% of every order is donated to Sick Kids Hospital. Check them out on Instagram or order now with Hearts and Bows Boutique. Judge, I got a question for you. You like cottages? Love them. You like Muskoka? Oh, you can't beat it. You know, one day you'd like to retire to Muskoka. Maybe have a custom cottage right on the lake. Sit back thing. on a Muskoka chair. Maybe a farm somewhere. Well, you want you want it custom built, and oh, you want yeah. only the best. That's why this week the Law Review is brought to you by Grow Construction. These guys are Muskoka's newest premium custom home building company. What we want you to do here at the Sports Law is give Trevor Grow a call at 705-787-8862, or you can hit him up on email at tgrow.com. That's T-G-R-O-H at Hotmail.ca today. And Grow Construction will build you your dream cottage or home today. They also build garages. These guys do great work up in Muskoka based out of Huntsville. I'll tell you what, uh, they get the Sports Law Seal of Approval because they're doing amazing work here. We're, We're happy to have them on board as a sponsor here on the Sports Law. The Sports Law Podcast. It is the law on sports, and it's all over the social medias. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the sports law. Also, follow us on Twitter at the sports law, and you can always get a hold of us by email at the sports law at gmail.com. Hey, it's 2016, so stay connected, stay tuned, and always stay up to date when it comes to both the law and sports. The Sports Law Podcast. We have your social media's covered. Friends and fans of O.J. Simpson are in shock today. Their image of a positive role model and all-American idol has been shattered. O.J. Simpson heads to court later in the day to be arraigned on murder charges. Simpson remains held without bail this morning under a suicide watch in a Los Angeles County jail. He is charged with murdering his ex-wife, Nicole Simpson, and a friend of hers, Ronald Goldman. He has proclaimed his innocence all along, and O.J. Simpson in the courtroom today formally told the court that he is not guilty of the charges that he was forced to hear read out against him. Journalists from all over the world have descended on the area to cover perhaps the most celebrated criminal trial of the century. While the media outside the courtroom can be chaotic and frenzied, inside the courtroom, Judge Lance Ito agreed to allow the single video camera to remain in the courtroom to provide pool coverage for all the networks as well as to local television stations. The Sports Law. It's the law on sports with the judge and legal analyst Andy Wood. Show the way. And that it is, and we continue here. It's the law on sports, and it is with myself, the judge, alongside, as always, the extraordinary legal analyst Andy Wood. I had a lot of fun in that first segment. We continue here. This is part number two of three of the People vs. O.J. Simpson, a review going back in time, back to the uh, 90s and what took place when it comes to the People vs. O.J. Simpson, but also in our first part, part number one, we went over the legacy of O.J. Simpson, what he meant to America, but also the world when it comes to his NFL career, his college career, uh, leading up to uh, the murder of his uh, ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and Ronald Goldman, as uh, they were found murdered 
at her house, and then the police got involved, and all fingers pointed to OJ, and we basically concluded last week's episode with the Bronco chase and the end of the Bronco chase. So in this part, we want to go over some details concerning the case. Uh, again, we're going to save some details also for part number three because there are, there's a lot to get to. So we're going to go over the start of the trial, cameras being part of the courtroom, a big part in this story, uh, plays a huge part in the story. Uh, jury selections, we want to talk about both the teams, the team for the prosecution and the case for the prosecution, but also the famous dream team that O.J. Simpson managed to put together. And we're going to conclude this part with some of the talk about Mark Furman and the race card. Cause, so we'll get into all that here as part number two. Again, where we left you off, basically all three... Uh, major network television stations, uh, CNN as well, were covering the Bronco chase uh, with about 95 million viewers nationwide tuning in, and they were cutting in and out. Yeah. Uh, you you mentioned some of the uh, sporting events that took place that day uh, with the uh, Game 5 of the NBA Finals between the New York Knicks and Houston Rockets at MSG. It was also uh, the New York Rangers' uh, Stanley Cup parade. You had Arnold Palmer's uh, final U.S. Open. Yeah, exactly. Final U.S. Open as well. So a lot was taking place during that day. Millions of people tuned into this. Everyone knows about the Bronco Chase, or at least knows something about the Bronco Chase. And that's where we left you you off. Basically, A.C. Collins was driving his former teammate uh, with the Buffalo Bills, was driving the Bronco. It was a very slow chase on the L.A. freeway, and it was a back and forth between him and the cops until he finally got home, was arrested, and that's where we are now. He's yep. arrested. He's getting set up for this trial. Now let's start talking about uh, the early uh, parts of this trial and what took place early on when it comes to putting these teams together, but also uh, OJ putting his defense together. That's right, uh, Judge. So after the Bronco chase on June the 20th, Simpson was arraigned and would plead not guilty to both murders. You know, uh, as expected, the presiding judge ordered that Simpson be held without bail, which is typical of most uh, when you have a crime like murder, rape, uh, that's not surprising that he was held without bail. The following day, a grand jury was called in to determine whether to indict him for the two murders. So, of course, in the U.S., you have your first your arrests, your arraignment, and then uh, you've got to get indicted. So the grand jury, two days later, they were actually dismissed as a result of the excessive media coverage. So there's sort of concern that it could have influenced their neutrality. Uh, Jill Shivery, a Brentwood resident who testified that she saw Simpson speeding away from the area of Nicole's house on the night of murders, testified to a grand jury that the Bronco almost collided with a Nissan at the intersection of Bundy and St. Vincent's Boulevard. Another grand jury witness would say, who was a knife salesman, claims to have sold Simpson a 15-inch German-made knife similar to the murder weapon three weeks before the murders. Both of these uh, were not presented by the prosecution at the criminal trial after they sold Sold their stories to tabloid press. So obviously those would have been important uh, witnesses at the trial, yeah. but uh, unfortunately the prosecution did not get to use them. Interesting to note there, uh, Shivery did talk to the sh- television show Hard Copy. She made five grand, and the man who sold, allegedly sold the knife sold the story to the National Enquirer for uh, 12, and, 12 and a half grand. So uh, interesting stories there. Rather than having a grand jury hearing, sort of another, what we do in the American legal system works, they had a probable cause hearing to determine whether or not to bring Simpson to trial, which was a minor, minor victory for Simpson's lawyers, who would now have access to evidence as it was being presented by the prosecution. Now, this is in contrast to the grand jury hearing where they wouldn't have that kind of access. After a week-long hearing, California Supreme Court 
judge Kathleen Kennedy Powell ruled that there was sufficient evidence to bring Simpson to trial for the murders. He was eventually arraigned and asked how he fled Simpson, breaking a courtroom practice that says the accused may plead using only the words guilty or not guilty, firmly set up in front of the courtroom, in front of the judge, and said absolutely 100% not guilty. I haven't even seen that on a TV show like Law & Order, so and, decision there by and, the juice. You know, it's, well, but it's still, at the end of the day, it wasn't a big deal at that point because he wasn't in front of a jury. Later on, he's in front of the real jury. And uh, another big deal as part of that that you mentioned early on in the trial were people selling their stories and witnesses selling their stories to uh, different media outlets. And I guess the hard part for the prosecution, and you see this in the FX miniseries, is that anyone that sold their story, they were not letting them be a witness when it comes to this. And with all the media coverage, I don't know how you weren't tempted at some point to uh, sell your story. And if prosecution, um, and they felt that you might be selling your story, they might just cut you out anyways when it comes to uh, the witness stand for the overall major trial. Yeah, it's sort of an ethical dilemma there for the prosecution. The basic point being, if you have a witness that's selling their story, you know, I think that really cuts the credibility of the witness, as you could say. Because, I mean, if you're if you're going to sell your story, you you, you may say anything, right? Whatever is going to up the ante on that. Yeah. So, it really cuts their credibility. Will really hurt their case uh, with the grand with the well, not only the grand jury, but with the uh, the jury at the main trial, which yeah. is why they'd be you know Johnny Cochran and Bob Shapiro and those guys would have had a field day with witnesses like that. Uh, they had a field day with uh, a lot of the witnesses anyway, but had they presented you know, really cr- critical witnesses like the knife salesman or Jill Shivery. I mean, I, I think they would have had a lot, uh, a lot stronger case. But uh, that's uh, that's what happened. I mean, you're in California; it's Hollywood, baby. Uh, well, exactly. And the next couple of things I'm going to bring up uh, deals exactly with that and some of the major implications. Uh, the next couple of items that I mentioned had in this case are just unbelievable. Uh, we talk about the the overall case and how we got to eventually cameras in the courtroom. And uh, it starts, though, with District Attorney Gil Garcetti electing to file charges in downtown L.A. as opposed to Santa Monica, where the crime occurred. The decision would prove highly controversial as it resulted in a jury pool with more Latinos, blacks, Asian Americans, and blue-collar workers rather than what would be found in Santa Monica. Leading the murder investigation was veteran LAPD Detective Tom Lang. In 1995, the criminal trial of O.J. Simpson was televised for 134 days. The prosecution elected to not ask for the death penalty and instead sought a life sentence. The TV exposure made celebrities pretty much out of anyone that was involved in this. And as we're talking here on the sports law, this is part two of our People versus O.J. Simpson review of both the FX miniseries and the uh, the review of the overall real case that took place in the 90s. This was sort of covered in the FX miniseries, Andy, as, you know, episode number four and five and six, as it... Part one was covered episode one, two, and three. So this yeah. is when we start getting into the details of how Marsha Clark and Chris Darden came together. District Attorney Christopher Darden would become Clark's co-counsel. And then uh, Simpson also wanted a speedy trial. The defense and prosecution attorneys worked around the clock for several months to prepare their case. In October 1994, Judge Ito, the famous Judge Ito, uh, started interviewing 304 prospective jurors each of whom had to fill out a 75-page questionnaire. On November 3rd, 12 jurors were seated with 12 alternates, and it was a battle for a jury position as well between the prosecution and the defense. But again, we go back to the fact that 
both the jury selection and the fact that cameras were in the courtroom were two intriguing topics out of this story, and it was covered in a big way in the FX miniseries, but also overall in the public, uh, it was covered definitely. Yeah, absolutely. So the jury selection, of course, took place. The emphasis, I guess, for the what was identified by you know one of Simpson's biggest, his lead counsel, eventual lead counsel, Johnny Cochran, was making sure that there were sort of a lot of blacks, a lot of other minorities, Hispanics, Asian on the jury who would you know be sympathetic to uh, Simpson's case, especially when they had the defense's plan, which was to really play up the relationship between the LAPD and the African American community at Los Angeles at the time. Some of the intentions of the police and really cut to the sort of play the race card as they you know sort of really do a great job of doing in the documentary. In the end, uh, both sides did accept a disproportionate number of female juries from the original jury pool of 40% white. 28% black, 17% Hispanic, and 15% Asian. The final jury for the trial had 10 women and 2 men, oh. of which there were 9 black people, 2 white people, and 1 Hispanic. So certainly, I think, in hindsight, was a favorable jury for the defense. But as, uh, as you talked about, Judge, that decision to place the case in downtown Los Angeles, I think, really played into that. But uh, I don't think the prosecution really, again, I was too young at the time, but really saw this heavy race card uh, that was going to be played. Uh, no. Not the, way, not the way we saw in the FX series as well. They sort of were confident in the jury selection. This is sort of what they wanted. They figured that these people were smart enough to figure out and read through the lines here. But again, they didn't think that what was going to come up came up as hard as it did when it comes to uh, Johnny Cochran and the defense team bringing up the ghosts of Mark Furman's past. Well, exactly. I mean, that was that that that's going to be a major part, I believe, of part three. But uh, certainly, that defense team certainly did uh, did do some damage on a key prosecution witness there. And uh, maybe we'll talk about that dream team. What do you think there? Yeah, the dream team is one of those things I definitely wanted to bring up as part of. Uh, Part two here, the People vs. O.J. Simpson, our review of both the actual trial that took place, but the FX series as well. The defense team, the dream team is what they were calling them. They were playing up to the media. They were playing in the courtroom as well. They had some of the best lines throughout the case. We're going to get to the glove don't fit, you must acquit in part number three and some of the stuff about Mark Furman in part number three as well. But the dream team, just how they came together, Andy, and as much as everyone thought they were best buddies, they weren't getting along behind the scenes as well. And you see that in the FX series, and they really tell that story about it. But it was quite the team put together by O.J. Simpson for his defense against this, against this murder charge. You hear a lot about this talk about justice. I guess Dr. Martin Luther King said it best when he said that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And so we are now embarked upon this search for justice. This case is about a rush to judgment. There was no rush to judgment in this case. It was very carefully considered. Two people have been brutally murdered, and the evidence consistently will point to the guilt of only one person as their murderer. The evidence in this case, we believe, will show that O.J. Simpson is an innocent man, wrongfully accused. We must all be equal in the eyes of the law. And we cannot use a sliding scale to judge guilt or innocence based on a defendant or a victim's popularity. All we ask is that you stay focused on what the case is about, about the murder of Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown. So thank you in advance again for your service, for the verdict that you're likely to render, and for all the things that you're doing here for us.
O.J. Simpson, former NFL player, media, I guess we'll call him star, uh, did have significant financial resources. His defense was said to have cost between $3 million and $6 million. And again, as you mentioned, the Dream Team, was that was dubbed by reporters. Let's go over a bit of the team. We had F. Lee Bailey, a well-known and controversial trial lawyer who uh, represented a guy named Sam Shepard. If you have a chance, look that up on Wikipedia. That's a wild story that goes into his past. Of course, Robert Kardashian, you may have heard of him, or you may have heard from his children who are married to stars such as Kanye West. You know, keep it you up definitely with the see the Kardashians early oh, on in the FX series. they make that very clear. <laughs> so, of course, he was a, actually went to law school, was more in the real estate business, again, as we mentioned last week. He did reactivate his uh, legal license to assist his friend, Uncle Juice, as the kids call him. So Robert Kardashian there, our favorite Ross uh, Geller, playing that part. And then the Leeds uh, attorney was a man named Robert Shapiro, played by John Travolta here. We, uh, he sort of was hired by Simpson, had the big prominent role, but he would be, you know, there were a number of other lawyers on the case, but the main one we want to talk about is the man that would take center stage and would take over the lead counsel's chair from Robert Shapiro, and that is known civil rights, we'll call him activist, defense yeah. lawyer, Johnny Cochran. Of course, this is all in the shadow of the Rodney King riots. Johnny, King, Johnny Cochran had been you know, for, a former district attorney himself, had been suing the NY LAPD for years, and really, you know, as they play up in the documentary, really wanted to get involved in this. O.J. would eventually retain him. He would eventually, eventually knock Robert Shapiro aside and would really lead the defense strategy of playing up this race card, playing up the, you know, sort of past of, as you mentioned, LAPD Detective Mark Furman, who did find the physical evidence and the glove at the scene and uh, really led this trial down a road that I don't think America, L.A., or the prosecution had any idea where it was going. <laughs> this idea of, of pitting the uh, r- really playing up this is a is a racially charged prosecution of a sort of African American hero in O.J. Simpson. So the, the there, there's where we go. There we had you know Johnny Cochran leading the charge and really a fascinating case from there as we lead the trial and uh, the evidence and uh, what was going to happen in the prosecution of O.J. Simpson. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Uh, great speaker, and it really comes through uh, both the FX series, but you go back and look at some of the uh, film from this case, and Johnny Cochran was just a stud, just a beauty up there in the way he put his defense together for O.J. Simpson. It was it was unreal, some of the things that came out of his mouth. And, and again, he practiced all this stuff, but one of the big things was uh, he was fighting for the rights and uh, an activist fighting for black rights as well, and really brought that angle into this case and and fought for that as well. And we're going to leave it off there because that's where it leads into Mark Furman, and that is another story for another day. We'll save it for Part 3 because we got a lot to go over in Part 3. We have to go over most of the uh, characters involved and where they are today. So Mark Furman will be a big part of that because he's also a big part of how this case ended up. And that's going to do it for Part Number 2 of Part 3 of the People vs. O.J. Simpson here on The Sports Law. We're going to wrap up this segment, Andy. Andy, again, stay tuned for next part three of three as uh, a lot of details to get to. And again, Andy calls this a, sp- a spoiler alert, but uh, O.J. Simpson is in jail. so But not for this crime. Not for this crime. <laughs> for some other dumb stuff. But it sort of ties into this crime and how he uh, yep. was held responsible f- in the civil case. Lost a lot of money because of it. That dream team alone, you said some of those names. 
You know lawyers. Up, up to, you know lawyers make the bank, and uh, they were making the bank in this I'd, one. I'd, I'd love to make that kind of scratch. Maybe, <laughs> maybe one day. So stay tuned here on the Sports Law again. Next, it'll be part three of three: the People versus OJ Simpson. One more segment to go here, as that's coming up next here on the Sports Law with myself, the judge, and legal analyst Andy Wood. Judge, I got a question for you. You like cottages? Love them. You like Muskoka? Oh, you can't beat it. You know, one day you'd like to retire to Muskoka. Maybe have a custom cottage right on the lake. Sit Beautiful back thing. on a Muskoka chair. Yeah. Maybe a farm somewhere. Well, you want you want it custom built. And oh, you want yeah. only the best. That's why this week the law review is brought to you by Grow Construction. These guys are Muskoka's newest premium custom home building company. What we want you to do here at the Sports Law is give Trevor Grow a call at 705 787 8862, or you can hit him up on email at tgrow, that's T-G-R-O-H, at hotmail.ca today. And Grow Construction will build you your dream cottage or home today. They also build garages. These guys do great work up in Muskoka, based out of Huntsville. I tell you what, uh, they get the Sports Law Seal of Approval because they're doing amazing work here. We're, We're happy to have them on board as a sponsor here on the Sports Law. Hearts and Bows Boutique, where you can get the bow for those closest to your heart. From beautiful bows, headbands, and bow ties, the answer to your accessory needs is Hearts and Bows Boutique. From the very young to the young at heart, there is nothing like your own personalized order for the ones you love. For more information and to place an order, contact Hearts and Bows Boutique at Hotmail.com. Again, Hearts and Bows Boutique at hotmail.com and the best part 10% of every order is donated to sick kids hospital check them out on instagram or order now with hearts and bows boutique the sports law podcast it is the law on sports and it's all over the social medias you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the sports law. Also, follow us on Twitter at the sports law, and you can always get a hold of us by email at the sports law at gmail.com. Hey, it's 2016, so stay connected, stay tuned, and always stay up to date when it comes to both the law and sports. The Sports Law Podcast, we have your social media's covered. Perhaps no other witness in the O.J. Simpson trial receives the same buildup as Mark Furman. Furman is the Los Angeles police detective who says he discovered a blood-stained glove outside Simpson's home. The defense portrays Furman as a racist, a rogue cop who planted the glove to frame Simpson. The Sports Law. It's the law on sports with the judge and legal analyst Andy Wood. Show That it is, and we continue here. Andy Wood by my side, the judge with you, the sports law. Here we are. We're finally there, Andy. Part three of three, the people versus O.J. Simpson. A uh, very special topic here on the sports law. Uh, a big reason why, uh, you know, we really pay attention to the law side of things when it comes to our athletes and the, the legalities, the, the battles in the courtrooms. Uh, and uh, this is one of the most popular, if not the biggest, cases of all time when it comes to an athlete and him being in the headlines for the wrong reasons and us just paying attention to a courtroom 
for a number of months. So this is part three of three. We went over uh, in part one and part two a bunch of uh, different storylines throughout uh, the O.J. Simpson murder case, from the murder itself to who was involved, who was suspected, also the detectives on the case. Uh, we talked about the jury selection, uh, how the trial came to be, how it ended up in a downtown courtroom, some of the evidence as well involved, and it leads us all up to this point. We'll get into some of the uh, topics we're going to talk about in a second, but we've come a long way, and a big reason we're doing this is because it's back in the headlines. One, because that FX miniseries, but also now uh, uh, 30 for 30 coming out shortly uh, when it comes to uh, the O.J. Simpson and the downward spiral that he went on following these murder charges and mm-hmm. uh, and also his, uh, yeah, this whole court battle and yeah, just the uh, public eye and how he, he'll always be held in a negative light. The juice, yeah. The the people uh, versus OJ, of course, what we're talking about. But yeah, OJ Simpson made in America. I was just reading on GQ today. Chuck Klosterman wrote a great article about how this next 30 for 30, as we said, OJ Simpson made in America, could be even better than uh, than the people versus OJ Simpson. And I, I personally, not to spoil my predictions, but I thought the, the miniseries was really enjoyable for those uh folks that haven't seen it out there. Yeah, we'll get to that uh, as uh, we're wrapping up the documentary also as part of 3 of 3 because we both had a chance to check it out over the last couple of months, uh, review it. I'm sure a lot of people out there have also had a chance to watch it, judge it for themselves as well. But we'll get it to the ratings at the end of this part 3 of 3. We want to talk about the world's reaction to the verdict, talk about the verdict, also what happened in the civil case. Also, where are they now and talk about the uh, main characters involved here. Uh, but uh, again, we want to start things off with, I think, one of the biggest things that took place in this case, and that was the race card being played, but the way it was played against a racist in Mark Furman. And we'll start there with part three of three, and this will lead us up to some of the end of the evidence with it comes to the when it comes to the glove, but also the verdict here. All right, Detective Mark Furman is on the witness stand. Good morning, Detective. Good morning, Your Honor. So at the time that you found the glove at Rockingham, did there appear to be any blood on it? It appeared to be somewhat uh, moist or sticky. I didn't touch it, but it, it appeared that parts were sticking to other parts of the glove. Could you tell whether that was a right or left-handed glove when you looked at it at that time? Uh, it appeared to be a right-handed glove. What significance did you attach to it when you saw it? Well, it looks similar to the glove on the Bundy scene. You watched the sort of the first parts of the documentary and certainly leading up to Johnny Cochran being retained as uh, lead counsel. Johnny Cochran was a noted you know, former district attorney himself who became a defense lawyer known for a lot of civil rights defenses against the LAPD. And certainly he had in his mind that the race card was going to be played. Little did they know at the beginning of this case that such a phenomenal witness for their side in uh, Detective Mark Furman would fall into the laps. Mark Furman, he was the LAPD detective who was one of the first detectives on the scene. And he was actually the man who discovered one of the now infamous bloody gloves at the scene. Furman would find the bodies, along with fellow police officers, at the Bundy condo, which were, of course, of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. And then he would move to Simpson's Rockingham residence, where he discovered the white Bronco. This led him to climb over the the wall into O.J.'s estates. Now, interesting point here, uh, judges, Furman and the other detective did not have a search warrant. Uh, which we may know of anyone on TV. You've seen if you want to enter someone's house, you got to go to a judge and get a warrant. They cited 
uh, exigent circumstances to enter the property, and their explanation was they were concerned that O.J. maybe hurt himself because there was, yeah. they saw blood in his vehicle. And, and uh, people, if they remember back to part uh, one of three here uh, about the people versus O.J. Simpson here on the sports law, is that we talked about that and how you know they hopped the fence and how they got access to the O.J. Simpson household there, and he wasn't even around. Yeah, so the critical physical evidence found by Mr. Furman, which really should have been a slam dunk for the prosecution in securing a, a guilty verdict, was the bloody glove, the blood in the vehicle. Even, uh, as we talked about, uh, Robert Kardashian himself, one of O.J.'s closest friends, uh, defense lawyer, of course, father of the famous Kardashian clan. But that's a story for another day that they do cover a lot on this documentary. But uh, he even said after, I mean, he really struggled with the blood evidence. And so they got, they've got the prosecution. You think about this, for those who haven't seen, you've got blood on the scene. You've got a bloody glove. It's in OJ's car. It's at OJ's house. But then there's the issue of Mark Furman himself. And they'd have a real field day with Mr. Furman. First, they found out that he was actually a racist. They found tapes of him speaking with a reporter on a book, and he used horrible racial epithets. He particularly had an issue with interracial couples, and he spoke about a former Los Angeles Police Department captain of his who just so happened to be married to Judge Lance Ito, the presiding judge in this case. So you really couldn't make this stuff up. All right, Detective Mark Furman is back on the witness stand undergoing cross-examination by Mr. Bailey. No, it's not possible. Are you therefore saying that you have not used that word in the past 10 years, Detective Furman? Yes, that's what I'm saying. So that anyone who comes to this court and quotes you as using that word in dealing with African-Americans would be a liar, would they not, Detective Yes, they would. All of them, correct? All of them. Was the testimony that you gave in this case completely truthful? I wish to assert my Fifth Amendment privilege. Is it your intention to assert your Fifth Amendment privilege with respect to all questions that I ask you? Yes. I only have one other question. What was that, Mr. Uh, Detective Furman, did you plant or manufacture any evidence in this case? I assert my Fifth Amendment privilege. You sort of have it all piled in there as as one thing, but it was sort of... Uh almost playing out like a drama the way uh, Mark Furman was involved in this case. He was the detective on the scene, like we mentioned. He uh, then became, because he was the detective on the scene, uh, one of the main witnesses for the prosecution and uh, one of the main guys that was going to testify. He does that early on in the case. He, He testifies, and they know that he's a racist, and they want to bring things up like that. So they bring things up. Uh, again, you mentioned Athlete Bailey and asking him if he has ever said the N-word in the last 10 years, and he denies it, denies it, denies it, and they were just going to sort of leave it at that possibly, maybe find something where he said it somewhere, and someone comes forward and brings them tapes with him saying it on there. So again, it just plays out like a drama, and there were questions around him the, in the documentary FX uh, miniseries, the... Uh, the show there, they show that, you know, some of the prosecution people on the team weren't that comfortable with uh, going with Mark Furman as one of their main guys that they have to talk about. Again, Darden didn't really want to question him as well. They well, he said, Darden, not sorry to interrupt you, Judge, but Darden, as a, he is African-American, he sensed that Furman was a racist, or at least that's how they yeah, played it in the documentary. There was something up with him yeah, as well, exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah, they played that out, and he didn't want to, uh, again, question him. So it ends up going on this big roller coaster ride of him being the hero, finding the evidence, 
uh, finding stuff at OJ's uh, residence as well, testifying, uh, getting through basically the tough questions. Yeah. Everyone thinks that we're coming his way from the dream team in Athlete Bailey. Then all of a sudden, a downward spiral. He ends up having to come back in court, and he ends up pleading the fifth and doesn't answer all the questions. So basically anything Mark Furman was involved with, including some of the main evidence was found, had to be thrown out or you can't you can't give it any credit at all because Mark Furman found it, and he's known to be a liar now and a racist. So there goes a big chunk of the prosecution's team, and that's how we sort of get to the end result with the verdict and such. Not to spoil it, but what actually happened to Furman is he did perjure himself, and that would cost him later on. So he lied on the stand. Yeah, and, but yeah, and he ends up the whole time when they bring him back into the courtroom to ask him the the, uh, the questions yet again, and. You know, they they even sneak a couple other questions in there, and they knew what he was going to say the whole time. Yeah, and for those who aren't familiar, again, the Fifth Amendment is the constitutional right in the United States against self-incrimination. So yeah. you, you, you're entitled to, if someone's asking you a question in court, and you feel that answering that question may implicate you in a criminal offense yourself— you can plead that uh, plead that right and not answer the question. So that's yeah. uh, we we we've sort of seen that in movies before. And like Dave Chappelle, I love that. Oh, exactly. <laughs> plead the fifth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then uh, so yeah, it turns into a pretty easy case uh, for the defense when it, you have one of the main detectives known as now a racist, a liar. On top mm-hmm. of that, you can't take anything he has said uh, and and put it into this case if you're the jury. And you have to throw everything out. And the judge doesn't like one of the main witnesses as well, and Mark Furman. So, and that's how we get to, sort of to the end result with the Dream Team playing that race card and playing it even harder now. Now that they know they have that, and like you mentioned, uh, really going after the credibility of not just Mark Furman but the prosecution team for putting Mark Furman on the stand. Mm-hmm. And they mention the words uh, a genocidal racist, and they go off on him in their closing arguments. Right before we get to the closing arguments, though, I guess even the glove evidence you know we end up getting to the point where the glove uh, doesn't fit and so you must acquit that's Johnny Cochran's big thing at the end as well Chris Darden makes OJ try the glove on in a big awful courtroom drama for the prosecution it plays out but at the same time you throw the glove evidence out the window because who found it Mark Furman yeah exactly it's uh, interesting how we get to the end result here you know we ask you a question did you have the courage did you have the intestinal fortitude to walk back into this courtroom if they fail to prove Mr. Simpson guilty you have the courage to walk back in and say we find him not guilty and you said you could do that that was part of your job you said you could do that we're going to hold you to that because that's what makes the system great for 16 months this man sat over here and heard people talk about him day in and day out judged him and prejudged him what right how dare them do that it's outrageous in America. It's intolerable, if you will. And so, this is a good and decent man. Loves his family, loves his kids. And then the gloves. The gloves didn't fit. The gloves didn't fit. The gloves didn't fit. Reasonable doubt. It just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit, you must acquit. Something is wrong. The prosecution's case and your common sense is never going to let you fall for it. Be fair. Don't be part of this continuing cover-up. Do the right thing, remembering that if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. That if these messengers have lied to you, you can't trust their message. 
that this has been a search for truth. Thank you for your attention. God bless you. Thank you very much, Mr. Cochran. I have just a few final instructions that I need to give to you before you start your deliberations on this matter. During the course of their arguments, counsels for both sides argued that, quote, the world is watching. You are reminded that you must not be influenced by public opinion or public feeling. Remember, apply the law as I have instructed you and reach a just verdict regardless of the consequences. The verdict judge, well, after just four hours of deliberation, which just to be, which I think people can guess, in a murder trial, you think if you sit on a jury, you know, you're going to want to discuss this. You're going to, you've got 12 people in there. There's going to be disagreements. There are going to be arguments. This is going to take days. I think that's what everybody anticipated. Yeah, not four hours. Four hours in a very short amount of time. Everyone goes to bed. The next day, they come back with a verdict. On October the 3rd, 1995, the jury finds Orenthal James Simpson not guilty in the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and not guilty in the murder of Ronald Goldman to the shock of the courtroom and the certain glee of uh, Mr. Simpson and his uh, the dream team, let's say. If there is any disruption during the reading of the verdicts, the uh, bailiffs will have the obligation to remove any persons disrupting these proceedings. All right, Mr. Simpson, would you please stand and face the jury? This is Robertson. Superior Court of California, County of Los Angeles. In the matter of the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson, case number BA097211. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime. The defendant having been acquitted of both charges, he is ordered, transported to an appropriate chair's facility and released forthwith. All right, we'll stand and recess. Yeah, shock to the world as well as uh, we go to the world's reaction on this and uh, really uh, iconic shots of uh, both, both races. You have the white race and uh, them just shocked, dead, deadpan faces. Yeah, this, not, guy no, got a, this guy got away yeah, with this murder. Guy got, exactly, yeah. those types of faces. And then uh, you have the African-American culture and, and the blacks around the world cheering for this because uh, they feel they won. And again, this goes back just like the FX miniseries started with the race card and what was played out in the Rodney King riots and how that played out and all the cops got off scot-free and this was almost the other way around yeah. where it's now we're going to get a guy off scot-free and it's going to be one of our biggest celebrities and that's where the race card came into play over the years though that's changed uh, people's opinions have changed because you can see uh, stuff online on the internet now watch videos about this stuff and realize how guilty oj simpson actually is but you can also understand for me i completely understand why this was a battle driven by race and where in time especially after again in LA what took place how it took place you have a a, a black hero an African American hero celebrity and a white woman that was murdered with her white friend and again I, I completely understand how everything came into play including that race card and including the different sides of the world's reaction to that initial 
verdict. Absolutely. And to be fair to the jury, I mean, the in a criminal trial, it's an extremely high standard of proof. I mean, we're talking murder. We're, we're either going to, if it's a capital murder case, we're either going to put, in certain states, we're either going to put someone to death or we're going to put them to jail for the rest of their life. So the burden of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt. Beyond, yes. And so all the def- defense has to do is, pre- is present a reasonable Some doubt. Some sort of, yeah. And I think one key part about this trial that gets, you know, I like to talk about is the resources that Mr. Simpson has that a lot of criminals don't have. I mean, to have a defense team that of, you know, Robert Shapiro, Johnny Cochran, I mean, Robert Kardashian is really just his buddy, but I mean, he was still there. You know, F. Lee Bailey, I mean, these really prominent lawyers. Great example, the Furman tapes. They had an O.J. Simpson hotline that they had a security yeah. guard sitting there fielding calls on. Now, how many people can afford to have a defense where you have a full-time employee sitting there answering calls on a hotline? I'd argue that 99% of people do not, especially those charged with criminal matters, don't have that kind of money. Johnny Cochran, like his tactics or not, did a really masterful job of playing to the jury what an alternate theory of the case, creating that reasonable doubt, and even to the even to the point where uh, Robert Shapiro, you know, who didn't agree with calling the LAPD racist, I mean, he had to work with them on a lot of other cases, didn't agree with the approach of Johnny Cochran, did come around to the opinion that uh, that it was the reasonable doubt that that won out here. So I think it was an interesting point there on the jury. You know, I think. A lot of people probably gave them a hard time thinking, how the hell can you find out that this guy's not guilty? But uh, I think in their minds, he may have been guilty, but uh, they, they just felt the prosecution didn't prove their case, which it's the prosecution's job to do. And if the prosecution doesn't prove your case, then you have to acquit. And uh, that's that, Judge. If the glove don't fit, you, you must, must acquit. acquit. Yeah. And uh, that's the famous line from Johnny Cochran at the end of uh, his closing arguments and uh, you know, that's exactly it, Andy, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, and and that was not proven by the prosecution. Uh, I think they confused the jury at times with some of the DNA evidence that the world wasn't even ready for at the time, let alone a jury. Mm-hmm. And again, there's factors that went into the jury and how it was picked, and uh, again, it was a downtown jury. They only, the four-hour factor was a big one to me, too, but then I understand it. I was like, you know what, maybe they already made their minds up. Yeah. They've been in the courtroom for uh, over over half a year and listening to this stuff. Maybe they already just threw out everything that Furman said as well. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. And I've said maybe a, a bunch of times when it comes to this case. And because of that, I can understand why, you know, they couldn't come to the verdict of 100% guilty because of some of the questions that came up. And again, you go back to that dream team. There was enough guys trying to bring up questions throughout the entire process. Yeah. And they did uh, one hell of a job of doing that. And the prosecution, I'm not big fans of what they presented, and I thought they presented a pretty weak case for yeah. what they had their hands on. And they also turned away certain uh, people from the witness stand for some ridiculous reasons. They left out key pieces of evidence, like the Bronco chase in itself. There was a disguise. There was money. There was O.J. trying to flee the country. That wasn't even brought up in court. No. And they just uh, relied completely on the blood evidence. And I just feel like we weren't at a time in the world where that blood evidence was completely 100% understood. Plus, the defense then comes counter back with, a, with an argument against the blood evidence saying it was uh, sloppy police work. It was sloppy this. It was sloppy that. Yeah. Great DNA team by the Dream Team, too. So they, they, you couldn't go wrong with them. And uh, the only thing I think that was wrong in this whole thing was that 
two people were murdered and the person that actually murdered them was left was yeah. found not guilty and at the end of the day my feeling on this is that a guilty man was framed yeah it's that's the way i go with this oj simpson case of a guilty man was framed i don't i believe or not necessarily believe 100% but Mark Furman was a shady man, and he might have had it out for OJ, and he wanted to point the finger at OJ, but the finger was already pointing at OJ, and he didn't have to push it over the top with the way he did and the way the police wanted to just put OJ in handcuffs as soon as he came back from Chicago for no reason. Yeah, Question him without his lawyer, and there were shady things that happened like that. So a guilty man was framed. Yeah, it's, he kind of went too far. It's, that's kind of my theory too, Judge, especially – I don't know if the folks out there have seen Making a Murderer, but I kind of have the same feeling there where they they wanted to make sure they got the guy beyond a reasonable doubt. But that's a story for another yeah, day. Yeah, I'd say so. I don't think that'll make it on the sports law, though. I don't believe uh, no. Stephen Avery's quite the athlete, but we'll look into that uh, a little <laughs> later on. Your overall rating, he is, though. He is not the athlete, <laughs> for those who have seen Stephen yeah. Avery. Uh, One point I wanted to mention, Judge, and this will just be quick. For those who kind of rewatched the documentary, one of the key points that Bob... Shapiro and a bunch of guys make to Johnny Cochran is that O.J. Simpson wasn't exactly integrated into the black community. He was a guy that married a white woman, from all accounts had mostly white friends. You know, his house, certainly there was no, not a lot of evidence of sort of, let's say, black culture to, to be overreaching here. Johnny Cochran went a long way to sort of change that image of OJ and even OJ himself there's a great part where the, the black jurors are arguing what to watch on TV and the white jurors want to watch Seinfeld and then they cut to OJ and he's talking about how great Seinfeld is and then they I thought the filmmakers did such a great point of building up OJ as as really this this guy that was really disconnect had had been disconnected from the black community and Johnny Cochran's job made it his mission to, was to really reconnect OJ with the black community because he saw that as the way to get an acquittal. Yeah. He got an acquittal. Uh, that was Johnny Cochran's job. Uh, he did the job. But a, an interesting intersection of race. Uh, I thought they did a masterful job here in the filmmaking. But uh, I'm really excited to see this OJ Simpson. OJ made in America ESPN 30 for 30 because anything that keeps OJ in the news keeps the sports law in business, yeah, and pretty happy too because it's a, uh, it's one of the, my favorite uh, cases of all time when it comes to an athlete involved and how can it not be? It's just so dramatic and how it played out from the start of uh, the breaking news that uh, two bodies were found to uh, OJ being one of the suspects to the Bronco chase to what happened in the courtroom, just just how the whole story out played out in the courtroom to Judge Ito to OJ Simpson himself. We end up. Uh, you know that's that's our ratings, but uh, we end up getting to a bit more of a conclusion near the end of this because we have both the uh, civil case and what happened there, and where are they now? If you just want to go over briefly about that that stuff. Yeah, the civil case. So both the Brown family and the Goldman families filed the civil lawsuits against OJ, and uh, Simpson was found responsible for the two deaths, and the families were rewarded both. Compensatory and punitive damage is totaling $33.5 million. That burden of proof I talked about in the criminal case, it is lower in the civil case. Uh, so he was found guilty in the civil case. A lot of money and uh, the Goldman family spent a lot of time trying to sort of scoop up any resources that OJ had to try and collect on that judgment and try and punish OJ for what he did to uh, their son 
and his friend Nicole. As for where are they now, O.J. Simpson, it after his acquittal, would move forward and search for the quote-unquote real killer, as he talked about. It was joked that he even searched on every golf course in America for this real killer. I mean, instead of spending time investigating, he did play a lot of golf. There's a great Howard Stern episode, I don't know if it's on YouTube, where they go find him on a golf course and ask him about the blood. It's uh, pretty funny, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, O.J. spent a lot of time golfing and looking for the real killer. Then, in 2007, justice was served, Judge. O.J. Simpson was found guilty of 10 charges surrounding an armed robbery in Nevada. He broke in with a couple buddies into a hotel room, which he says was to take back merchandise, or I guess it was uh, memorabilia, which he claimed to be his, and the judge in Nevada did not like that. He was sentenced to a long uh, prison sentence. He could be eligible for parole in 2017. Johnny Cochran, the famed defense attorney, passed away in 2005 from a brain tumor. He did continue his law practice after the OJ verdict. Robert Shapiro, interestingly enough, would go on to found LegalZoom.com, which does sponsor a lot of podcasts. So if the LegalZoom people are listening, we'd be happy to take on another sponsor. Anyway, that's an interesting aspect of that. Uh, Robert Shapiro did notably disagree with Johnny Cochran's uh, decision to sort of go after the LAPD as racists. Again, he had to have many other court cases with the LAPD, so he did not want to sour that uh, relationship. However, he did believe the proper verdict was found based on the burden of proof. Robert Shapiro was the one that also put on the glove that proved it was too small, so he really came up huge for the defense there. Marsha Clark, the lead prosecutor, would resign after the OJ case and never actually practice law again. Uh, she would author a book and make frequent media appearances after that. And finally, the uh, her co-counsel, Christopher Darden, who was the man that presented the glove to OJ, would go on to lecture at a law school universities and set up a defense practice. He actually recently, in 2012, accused Johnny Cochran of manipulating one of the gloves so they didn't fit. So that's the civil case. That's where everybody is now. That's a wrap on the People versus OJ Simpson. And uh, I think this is the real definitive story on uh, O.J. Simpson here on the Sports Law Podcast. Yeah, that's going to do it. Part three of three, the people versus O.J. Simpson. And it was a lot of fun bringing you the uh, our topics, talking about the miniseries, the FX version that they put together. Again, keep an eye on what's coming out about ESPN and uh, what they're going to put together, another O.J. Simpson documentary. But a lot of fun talking about it because it was such a hot topic of the time, but also uh, always a hot topic Uh, when it comes to sports and the law here on the sports law that's exactly what we like to talk about and again um you can go online check out youtube and all the videos about uh oj simpson over the years different interviews taking place different documentaries done by the bbc done by dateline and they're just uh, fascinating to watch and you can get wrapped up for hours in some of this stuff so again we appreciate you tuning in to part three of three of the people versus oj simpson that's going to do it uh we'll keep an eye on that espn documentary that's going to come out and we'll bring that up probably in the sports law review at some point and oj also has a book i forgot to mention he did come out with a book after this after after his acquittal i think it was in the mid-2000s called if i did it so yeah, i'll just leave it so at that we'll judge. leave it at that as well eventually yeah justice was served and that was a solid judge that came down with that justice as well against O.J. Simpson, a female judge in, uh, in the state of Nevada, and they hammered him with uh, going after his stuff. But, again, he was uh, he commits robbery and uh, finds himself in jail in the end. So, again, justice f- served, but uh, the wrong justice, I guess, 
because he should have been in jail for murder at the end of uh, all this. So that was the People vs. O.J. Simpson Part 3 of 3. This is the Sports Law.